Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Nahum. Nahum. If you are unfamiliar with where that might be, probably at this point the best thing to do is, in Matthew, go left six blocks and you'll see Nahum. Spend a moment in prayer. Father, we come before you in prayer as a body. We don't do it just because it's a tradition that we do after we sing and before we read your word. We do it because we realize it is your word. And we're asking your spirit to show what things in it are for us, to help in our understanding, our comprehension. Lord, like the Bereans, we search the scriptures daily to see if things that we hear are so. And so as we search tonight through this book, we submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit in our lives. Because we know, Lord, that that work is not finished yet. And it won't be finished till we get to glory. And so tonight, Father, we pray that you would chisel away, work away at areas in our lives that need your touch maybe a firm touch. For others, Lord, bring great encouragement, fill with joy, bring a sense of peace. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It is very sobering to watch the destruction of a city. My mind goes back to the first Gulf War. I may have my dates wrong, but I think it was 91. And I remember I wasn't at home. I was some other place, I think traveling. And I was out on the street somewhere when the first pictures came of the United States lobbing those missiles into Baghdad. And I remember going into a store where there were television sets. It might have even been a, an appliance store of sorts, but I remember everyone standing in absolute astonishment, stunned at watching those images in our modern time of the United States waging war against Iraq. It was sobering. The entire book of Nahum, and there's only three chapters, we hope by God's grace to cover them all tonight. Again, the caveat is by God's grace. The entire book is devoted to the destruction of a city not very far from Baghdad, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire in ancient times. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak about its destruction. Chapter 1, the destruction is decreed. It is from God. There is no turning back. In chapter 2, the destruction is described very graphically. And in chapter 3, we see that the destruction is deserved. And God tells us why He's doing it. So the entire book centers around the destruction of a city. I know it doesn't sound very encouraging or comforting, but there's some great truths and great parts. And I find the subject very comforting, as I'll describe as we go through it. I call the book of Nahum the sermon that Jonah wished he'd preached. It just fits his personality. He was the guy who wanted Nineveh to be destroyed and was very bummed out when God forgave the entire city. In fact, not only did he forgive the entire city, but there was a revival that was unparalleled in history where the population of Nineveh, upwards of around 600,000, we believe, all of them, from the king all the way down, turned to God in repentance. Unheard of. 
unparalleled in history. That took place 150 years before this takes place. So Nahum and Jonah are separated by a century and a half. In that time, in 150 years, that city once completely converted to the God of Israel has now turned back to their old ways, not only turned back to their old ways, but have gotten worse than ever before. So a city once completely forgiven because they turned in repentance is now completely doomed because of their behavior. That is a sobering thought. That is the book that we cover tonight before us. Now, we admit that talking about such a subject, destruction, judgment, wrath, is very uncomfortable. You find it uncomfortable to talk about it with unbelievers who bring it up regularly. You've heard the news yesterday that the Reverend Jerry Falwell died in his office, passed away. And it made huge news. Of course, his whole life he made big news. He was controversial, and one of the main reasons is that Falwell was never afraid to bring up this subject, was he? He would talk freely about the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the world, upon America, which made a lot of people hate him because he was so honest about his convictions. And he felt if you've got the far left being honest about their convictions, I'm going to be honest about mine. He made a lot of enemies being honest about the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Which I find ironic. And here's why. On one hand, you have people saying, How could a God of love allow evil to exist in our world? And how could a God of love allow evil people to exist? And then as soon as somebody proclaims God's judgment on evil people, they get mad. Because the definition of good and evil that man has is very different than the good and evil definition that God has. That's the crux of it. I'll give you an example. Remember in the New Testament where somebody came up to Jesus and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Now, Jesus was only saying one of two things. There's only two possibilities. Either he was saying, A, I am no good, or B, I am God. Why do you call me good? Is it that you recognize something about me, some characteristic that would give you the permission to use that description of me? Why do you call me good? Because there's only one that is good, and that is God. The definition that Jesus has of good is that only God is good. All mankind, in the Bible everywhere would concur, all mankind is basically not good, but basically evil. Sinners by nature, sinners by choice. The Bible paints a very graphic picture of man being utterly, totally depraved and needing salvation. So when the worldly person says, how can a God of love allow evil people to get away with this? God's answer is, oh, I won't. The wrath of God will fall upon the evil. Then they get upset because of what the Bible says evil is and who the Bible says evil is. Well, it's clear here who the target is in this book. It is Nineveh. And so it begins, the burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Where is Elkosh? That's where he is from, some city called Elkosh, which would make him, as an inhabitant, an Elkoshite. You know how the Bible does that? You have Canaanites, and you have Girgashites, and you have Elkoshites. 
you're an Albuquerqueite, <laughs> using a biblical term. We don't know where Elkosh is. There's a few possibilities. Number one, it's 24 miles north of the capital city of Nineveh. Number two, some suppose that it's somewhere down in Judah, not far from Jerusalem. But there's a third possibility that I find interesting. Some believe that he is from a little village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, known in ancient times, Old Testament times, as Elkosh. Known in New Testament times as Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus Christ for three and a half years of his ministry. Now, Capernaum is the anglicized form of two Hebrew words, Kafar Nahum. And it literally means the village of Nahum, Capernaum. So it could be that the very place Jesus centered his Galilean ministry, made his headquarters, was the hometown of this prophet, Nahum, the Elkishite. Now we have God introduced in the next few verses, and here's something noteworthy about the book. This prophet begins by painting a picture of the character of God. And it's that picture that he paints that becomes the foundation for the rest of the book. So the reason God can describe the destruction of Nineveh and say Nineveh deserves that judgment is all based upon the perfect character and nature of God. It's foundational to the entire book. So it says, God is jealous, the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. And the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. And the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like a fire. And the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. Allow me for a moment to push the pause button on what we just read and tell you a little bit about Nineveh as a city. Do you remember that it was the great-grandson of Noah that was the founder of that city back in Genesis 10? Some of you remember his name, Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, the great-grandson of Noah. He was the founder of this city. Now, I'm going to give you four names right off the bat. You can either remember them or write them down, but they become very important to the story. I'll give you the names, then I'll tell you the story. Name number one, Shalmaneser. They're all weird names. Shalmaneser. Name number two, Sargon. Sounds like gas of some kind. Shalmaneser, Sargon. Third name, Sennacherib. And fourth name, Rabshakeh. I tell you, all of those are weird names. They're somewhat biblical names. Don't use them if you're going to name your child a biblical name. Pass over those. <laughs> now let me tell you the story. In 722 B.C., the first guy... Shalmaneser V invaded Samaria. He was going to take over that entire ten-nation confederacy, the ten northern tribes. He died in the process. He was unable to complete the task. His son, second name, Sargon, finished the task, took over the northern kingdom, expelling and taking captive those Jews who lived there. A few years after that, 701 B.C., Sennacherib, 
All of these are Assyrian rulers, Assyrian kings. Sennacherib invaded Judah, the southern kingdom, took 47 cities captive, destroyed them basically, strongholds of Judah, and marched up against Jerusalem with a threat and a threatening letter and said, you might as well surrender. Everyone else who's tried to fight us is dead. Don't trust your king and don't trust your God. The king of Judah at the time was Hezekiah. He took the letter and spread it before the Lord and asked God for help. And God helped miraculously, supernaturally. The next morning, there were 185,000 Assyrians lying dead around Jerusalem because a single angel of God wiped them out. Well, that was enough for Sennacherib. He hightailed it quickly back to Nineveh, where now, under the sentence of Nahum the prophet, he is slated for judgment. That's the background. Now we can understand the book a little bit better. Look at the character of God. Notice in verse 2, it says God is jealous. But then in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. Eight times in your Bible it will tell you that God is jealous. Isn't that an odd description of the God of gods, the God of heaven, the Creator? God is jealous? Now don't think of that in terms of human jealousy. Let me give you a better word, okay? The Lord is zealous. In fact, the word kana in Hebrew means to have zeal over one's own possession. These people, these people in Judah and Israel, they belong to me, God would say. I'm zealous over them. Hands off. Hands off, Shalmaneser. Hands off, Sargon. Hands off, Sennacherib. They're mine. The Lord is jealous. Frankly, I love that about God. He's a jealous God. I belong to Him. You mess with God's kids, you mess with God. Ask Saul of Tarsus, he found out. You mess with those Christians that live in Damascus, you mess with the God who owns them. The God is jealous, or God is zealous. He avenges, he is furious, he will take vengeance on his adversaries. They're mentioned in that same verse. And also in the next stanza, he reserves wrath for his enemies. Boy, I wouldn't want to be God's enemy, would you? I read enough of the Scripture to know that the worst side of God to be on is to be designated as His enemy. I love what Jesus said. No longer do I call you my servants. I call you my friends. That's the best side of God to be on. To be His friend, to be His buddy. And if you think about it, wouldn't you rather have the whole world as your enemy and God as your friend than the whole world as your friend and God as your enemy? Martin Luther said, with God, one is a majority. So the Ninevites are outnumbered because God is on the side of this nation, Judah. Verse 3 helps us fill in that description of the anger and wrath of God. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and He will not at all acquit the wicked. So that's a fuller picture. Yes, God has wrath. Yes, God gets angry. But He's slow to get angry. He is what Peter said, long-suffering. And you probably should always read that and pronounce it long-suffering, like Gail Irwin does. Slow to anger. You've heard him do that. Peter said, The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But right after that, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So God's slow, God's patient, He's long-suffering, but when He decides to act, He'll act pretty quickly. Once that waiting period is up, 
He is slow to anger, but he acts. Somebody put it this way. The wheels of God turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. The Ninevites will be utterly, totally, absolutely destroyed. This pronouncement of judgment upon Nineveh will usher in the total annihilation of the dynasty of Sennacherib, Nineveh as a capital, and Assyria as a nation. In fact, after this destruction, nobody will ever be able to find any ruins of Nineveh until the year 1840, when archaeologists start turning up the dirt over in that area. So utter was that destruction. The mountains quake, verse 5, before him. The hills melt. Notice how picturesque. The earth heaves at his presence. And yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Does it make sense to you that the creator of the earth has the right to do whatever he wants to it, if it's his, if he made it? Now, the reason I'm asking that question is because in the tribulation period, the environment will be absolutely trashed. Hey, you know, my applause to you, those of you who are trying to save this environment, Great. If you're into that, great. You know, you're thinking of your kids and your grandkids and you want to clean the air up and keep things green. Great. But, fair warning, if you think we've trashed the environment, where do you see what God does to it? I mean, He completely annihilates it and nothing is safe. Everything is toxic during the tribulation period. And it says in verse 6, a question that will also be asked during that ultimate time of judgment. Who can stand before his indignation? In Revelation chapter 6, the people living on the earth during that horrible time of judgment called the Great Tribulation. They will say, concerning the wrath of Jesus Christ, the wrath of the Lamb, great is the wrath of the Lamb, and who is able to stand before him? I know that sounds like an oxymoron. The wrath of a lamb? Have you ever seen a mad lamb? Look out! Watch lamb. Lambo. But it's the lamb of God. Wrath. Indignation. Verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who trust in Him. Now how can it say God is angry, God is jealous, and in the same paragraph say God is good? I see no conflict. I see none at all. In fact, if you follow it logically, if God doesn't get angry and God doesn't stay jealous and God doesn't execute judgment and wrath, He's not good. If God will let all of the evil and wickedness that has occurred over time in this world just go passively on without any intervention, without any kind of acknowledgement of that or dealing with that, then God is amoral. He is not good. And any view of God that doesn't take into account His wrath is a distorted view of God. A lot of people have distorted views of God. He's sitting up on a cloud, kind of humming his way through life, smiling at everybody, allowing everything to happen. That's not good. And that's not the God we serve. The God we serve is absolutely, utterly good. And because he's good, he's going to deal with bad eventually. Utterly. Totally. Permanently. It's important that you know that God is good. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 73, his name was Asaph? He began with this utterance. Truly God is good to Israel, and as such as have an upright heart. But as for me, he continues, my feet nearly stumbled. I almost completely lost it when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and how hard the righteous have it. So he begins with the right premise, God is good. But in my own experience... I'm not seeing a whole lot of that. I'm seeing righteous people have bad stuff happen to them, and I'm seeing ungodly people get away with murder. 
But I know that God is good. That's how he starts. That's how you ought to start your prayers whenever you're dealing with similar issues. Begin by saying, Lord, I know that you're good. I acknowledge that. It's part of the foundation of my belief system. And as you follow Psalm 73 down, it gets really good. Here he's saying, I almost lost it because I see good things happen to bad people. And then he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I thought about where they will end up, the wicked people. I thought about their end, ultimately. Now I started feeling sorry for them. Not jealous of them because they didn't seem to suffer like I suffered. I felt sorry for them because I thought of the ultimate judgment. Truly God is good. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its, that is Nineveh's place, that was situated, oops, wrong verse, and darkness will pursue his enemies. I wonder if you can picture for just a moment in your mind what Nineveh looked like. I'll help you. You've got to picture a wall that's a hundred feet high. So you're walking to the, from the outskirts of the town toward town central, and you see a wall a hundred feet high. Now this peak up here is thirty-some feet high. Go up a hundred feet. That's how tall the wall around the city was. There were fifteen gates around the city that allowed entrance and exit. Above each gate was inscribed the name of fifteen different gods and goddesses of the Assyrians. Twelve hundred towers were around the walls of the city, and those towers were another hundred feet higher than the wall, so towers upwards of two hundred feet. The wall had to be thick to sustain that height, and it was wide enough that three chariots could race abreast atop the walls of Nineveh. According to C.F. Kyle, an Old Testament archaeologist, the diameter of Nineveh was 19 miles. The circumference was 60 miles. Now, I'll tell you why I'm telling you that. In the book of Jonah, God says to Jonah the second time, go and preach against Nineveh, that great city... Its wickedness has come before me. And God said it was a a city three days in extent. According to ancient reckoning, a person walked about 20 miles a day when they were en route traveling from point A to point B. If it was a long journey, you'd cover 20 miles a day. So it took three days, because it was 60 miles in circumference, to go around that city. Huge intimidating, idolatrous place. God says he'll make an end of it. Verse 9, God asks these Assyrians, Why do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, They shall be devoured like stubble, fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Did you notice how that was placed, how the wording was put in verse 9? Why do you conspire against the Lord? You know what that means? You know what he's talking about? In Isaiah chapter 36, we have the full account of the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. They have just conquered 47 Judean cities. They now come around the city of Jerusalem. Now keep this in mind. They're conspiring against the Lord. I hope you don't mind. Would you turn with me, keeping a marker here, back to Isaiah? You can't miss it. It's the biggest book around. Isaiah 36. Just keep going backwards. Go left to Isaiah chapter 36. There's just a few verses I want you to see to understand the verse we just read.
Isaiah 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up and attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh. Now that was the fourth name that I gave you a few minutes ago. Rabshakeh is an Assyrian word that means the general or the field commander. It's not his actual name, it's his title. With a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. I suppose if you know the area, you go, oh, okay, now I know where it is. For the rest of us, we just pass by it. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. They had formed a coalition on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part, put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against the land and destroy it. Now, I won't read it all, but here's what he's basically saying. Do you think trusting your Yahweh, your God, is going to save you from me? Listen. It was your God who told me to take you captive. I'm doing His will. And the rest of the letter and the rest of the words are very defiant against God. So that's why Nahum puts it this way. What do you conspire against the Lord? That's why King Hezekiah spread out the letter, asked God for help. God gave them help, as predicted by Isaiah the prophet in that chapter. Back to Nahum. Verse 10, toward the end, it says, They shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. Okay, let me tell you how this city eventually was destroyed, because we're going to read a description of it and just kind of read through it in just a moment. It took three years to besiege the city of Assyria. Assyria was built on three rivers, the Tigris and a couple of others. And then there were canals that connected those rivers together within the city. And there were doors that would open and close to allow water into the different districts around the city, much like the Rio Grande has its lateral ditches that allow water to feed that area. During the springtime of the year that it fell, rain was unusually heavy that year. The Tigris River had overflown its banks. The walls of the city weakened and collapsed a stretch of two and a half miles that allowed the invading army, and the army, by the way, was a coalition of Medes from the north, Babylonians from the south, Persians and Arabians. They formed a coalition. They entered the city through that breach. The water had compromised the foundations of the entire palace, and it fell. And then once the enemies came in, they set the rest of the city on fire. So you find references to water in the destruction, floodwaters, and fire or stubble being consumed. And you say, well, how could that be possible when you've got water flooding the city? How can it be destroyed by fire? Part by water and the other part by fire. Verse 11 
says, From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Or literally, a counselor of Belial. As if to infer that behind this wicked counselor, who, by the way, was Sennacherib, that third weird name, that behind Sennacherib, the real power in this attack against God's people in Judah was satanic. It was satanically inspired. It came into his mind, I'm going to destroy the Jews. That's why when I hear the rhetoric coming out of Iran with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, that's another weird name, saying, I'm going to destroy the Jews. I'm going to destroy Israel and the United States. I have more fear for the United States than I do for Israel. Not because Israel's perfect, not because Israel's righteous, only because God has sworn, whoever touches you will touch the apple of my eye. And God has sworn to protect the land that he gave as a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So verse 12, thus says the Lord, Though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile." This destruction will totally end the dynasty of King Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire forever. Behold, verse 15, ending that chapter, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one will no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What are the good tidings that are predicted? It's the good tidings that the enemy is gone. It's the good tidings that the persecutor has been destroyed. It's the good tidings that the Ninevites, the ones Jonah wanted to be destroyed, have passed the line, left repentance, turned back to their idolatry, attacked Judah, and now God says, they're done. They will hassle you no more. That's good news. When I was growing up, I had a larger, taller, older brother named Bob. Bob grew up to be six foot eight inches. I'm six foot five inches, and at that time I wasn't six foot five, but he was, he was pretty tall. And a six foot eight guy can look really imposing. And I loved it when I'd get into trouble, because I could always talk to Bob. And I loved, he, he loved playing the older brother. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. And then he'd come back from whatever he did and say, I took care of it. <laughs> and I thought, love that. Big brother, don't mess with me because you mess with Bob. The children of Israel had their Bob. Bigger than six foot eight, the living God. The good news, God would say, took care of it. Don't worry about it. Their history, light stuff. It's called good news. Now this verse that we just read, verse 15, sounds very similar to a text in Isaiah 52 that you have heard about, or even you've even sang it in a song before. Behold, how beautiful are the feet of those on top of the mountains who bring good news and bring songs of deliverance and salvation, saying, Our God reigns. When Isaiah penned that, he was saying, The Babylonian threat is over. That's the good news of salvation. When Nahum said it, he was saying, The Assyrian threat is over. That's the good news. But we're not done. Romans chapter 10, I think it's chapter 10, Paul will restate that verse from Isaiah, and similar to Nahum, and use that to refer to when Jesus Christ comes, ruling and reigning as Messiah after conquering 
the enemies of Israel in the end times. Again, the anthem will be good news, songs of deliverance, songs of salvation. Our God reigns. So now chapter 2, the destruction is now described. And we're going to read through most of this without a whole lot of comment. We'll make a few comments, but chapter 2 of the book of Nahum is considered even by the secular world as a masterpiece in literature. Just by the way the words are formed, the poetic utterances of even this very sour subject of destruction. It's considered a masterpiece. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. So this is the first sight of the armies approaching the city of Nineveh. They can spot that coalition in the distance. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Now in verse 3, it says the shields are made red. What would that be from? Now it's sort of a trick question because some of you said blood, and you're right in part, but let me tell you this. Both the Babylonians and the Medes, they were two people in that coalition against the Ninevites. Both of those armies loved the color red. So this is what they would do. They would make their shields and cover them with a hide, which was typical in those days. They'd cover it with a bull hide, and they would paint the shields red. Because the color red, they thought, was intimidating to the enemies. If you saw this whole wall of red shields, like, ooh. They did it for another reason. So that just in case they got cut and some of their blood splattered on their shields, their enemies wouldn't be able to see it. It'd be covered by the color red that was on the shields. So they loved the color red. So these red shields are coming after the Ninevites. That's the idea in verse 3. They jostle one another in the broad roads, verse 4. Verse 5, he resembles, or excuse me, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened. That's an amazing verse of Scripture. And the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with a voice of doves beating their breasts. It's one of the most amazing stanzas in any piece of literature, even in the Bible. Because we have in a few verses, in brevity but with accuracy, the fall of Nineveh predicted. Remember I said Nineveh was built on three rivers and canal systems? The waters had compromised the wall. It had broken down. The palace became dissolved. The foundations just let it fall. The soldiers marched up against the left bank of the Tigris River, went through the breach, and completely took over that city, as I said, burning the rest of it with fire. Now, there is a Greek historian who tells us that when Nineveh was finally breached, when the enemies had come in, that the king of Nineveh, this is uh, either Sennacherib or the next Sennacherib, I can't remember the history fully, but the king of Assyria, in seeing that he was surrounded and the walls were breached, had built a funeral pyre in the middle of his palace, put himself, his family, his concubines, and his eunuchs all on top of this funeral pyre, lit it aflame, and all of them were killed, cremated before the enemies could get to them to dishonor their bodies. Amazing, amazing history. Though Nineveh, verse 8 of old, was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. Now that same Greek historian 
who wrote about the funeral pyre. His name was Diodorus, by the way. Diodorus also said that when the enemies came into Nineveh, they found jewels, they found treasures, money, spoil, that was too much in amount to even count. And thus, once again, amazing prophecies written in advance that were fulfilled. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, the knees shake. Much pain is on every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one makes them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his loneliness, filled his caves with prey, and his dens with flesh. Now, there's a lot of references in those phrases that we just read about lions. Lions, lion cubs, lionesses, more lions. Here's why. One of the favorite decorations in Assyrian palaces was a winged lion with the face of a man. It to them represented the great impregnable strength of the Assyrian Empire. God is saying, the zoo has been torn down and even the lions are destroyed. You're not going to make it out. You strong lions are all defeated. Verse 13 sums it up. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. And the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Now God says, I'm against you. I'd hate for God to say that about me, wouldn't you? I am so grateful that God hasn't said that about me and He hasn't said that about you. In fact, God has said the very opposite about you. God said that He's for you. And in Romans 8, the Scripture says, If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the great promise of the New Testament. You come to Christ as weak as we are, as faltering as we may be, God is for us. And if God is for you, who cares who's against you? Let the world be against you, because God is not against you. He's for you. And the reason He's for you is because the refuge He has prepared for you is the cross. And if you're not clinging to the cross and letting God be your refuge, then it must be said, like Nineveh, God is against you. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, both of these truths are compatible. God is love, God is good, but God is angry with the wicked, and God will bring judgment. And that's fully a matter of your choice. If you decide not to allow yourself to be in Christ, covered by His blood, by that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, then God has always been and will continue to be against you even though He was for you in sending His Son to die for you. If you by choice say, I don't want that, I don't want to stand in my own self, merit, or sins, I want to stand in Christ alone, and as soon as you say that and give your life to Christ, God will declare, I'm for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Now, chapter 3 tells us the reasons. This is now the destruction that is deserved. We only have 10 minutes, and you know what? No problem. We're right on time. There's only 19 verses. We can make it. Okay, so now watch this. Or as that Randy guy says on American Idol, check it out. Okay? We've been through all this judgment, destruction, decreed, destruction, described, chapter 2. Now the destruction deserved. This is why. Here God will list the reasons why He's pulling this off. And there's three reasons that God is against them for. 
First of all, their brutality. Look at verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. The city of Nineveh, it's a matter of history, was one of the most brutal, violent cities in the ancient world. I described it when we went through the book of Jonah in more detail. Incredible brutality. God recounts that here. Remember in Jonah. Jonah, go speak and preach to the Ninevites, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here's part of it here. Now, I found a little interesting piece of history you might be interested in as well. I was. I'll read to you an inscription. This was found on a monument commemorating the 18-year reign of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal II. Here's the inscription. Quote, Great number of them in the land of Kiri I slew. 260 of their fighting men, I cut down with a sword. I cut off their heads. I formed them into pillars. I flayed, or skinned, all of the chief men of the city who revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skin. From some, I cut off their hands and their fingers. From others, I cut off their noses, ears. Of many, I put out their eyes. I bound their heads to the posts or the tree trunks round about the city. He was bragging. That was found on an inscription of stone by an archaeologist. So, woe to the bloody city. No wonder God's against them. He's had enough. First charge, brutality. Second charge, idolatry. Because of the multitude of harlotries, verse 4, the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations to their harlotries and families to their sorceries, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. That's a picture of shame, disgrace. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than No Amon? That's the ancient city of Thebes, the capital of ancient Egypt. The reason it's mentioned, I believe, is that it was very, very similar to Nineveh. Walls, gates, uh, located on a river, the Nile, not the Tigris. And its fall was very similar. That was situated by the river, that is the Nile, and the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. It was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers, that is the North African or Libyan nation. She was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. I'm not going to make comment on that. I think it's pretty obvious what is being said. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. In other words, make all the preparations you know you must make when a siege is coming because they're going to build ramparts, take down the walls, go through the breach, get your water supplies, get your food supplies, whatever you need to do, ain't going to matter, ain't going to help. There the fire will destroy you. The sword will cut you off. 
It will eat you up like a locust. Now you know why I say this was the sermon that Jonah wished he'd preached. Man, he would have done this sermon justice. He'd have loved it. But God had different lessons to teach him. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locust. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, your generals like grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. All of that language speaks of the population base of Nineveh at the time of its destruction. Now remember back in the last chapter of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. God says, Jonah... You're all bummed out about this gourd that you were under that gave you a little bit of shade and you were, you know, blessed out of your gourd and now the gourd gets withered and you're all bummed out crying because of the gourd and, and you're so concerned about this idiotic little plant and you're not concerned about the whole population of Nineveh where there are, God said, more than 120,000 who can't tell their right hand from their left hand. In other words, there were 120,000 little children which would make the population at the time of Jonah upwards of 600,000 people. He wasn't concerned about that population and that that is being referenced here in the book of Nahum, the, the amount of people that lived in that incredible city. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your nobles, I already read that, rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? So, God, slow to anger, long-suffering. And He proved it. He waited 150 years more until he destroyed this city. But then he destroyed it. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, if you're a believer, God's for you. If you refuse to place yourself under the glorious shed blood of of Jesus Christ, God's only solution for sin. You are like Nineveh. And God would say, I'm against you. Don't want to be. It's your choice. But I'm against you. I like the first option. I'd rather have the world as my enemy and have them all against me and have God as my friend And Jesus say, I call you my friends. I'm for you. I don't care what the world thinks. And neither should you. Let's pray. Lord, once again, you prove yourself just. Both the justifier of anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, justifying us from our sin, wiping it away freely, but also perfectly just in your judgment upon the world. Lord, there's parts of that whole doctrine of judgment and the wrath of God that we struggle with, that we don't understand, we wonder about people who have never heard, etc., etc., but we know something about your character. We know you're good. We also know that in your goodness you're slow to anger, and we know that as the only just judge of the world, you will act justly toward every person. So we rest, not because we know the answers, but because we know you. We know that you know the answers. And we rest in those parts that we are unsure. We rest confidently in your nature and character. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons we have gleaned tonight from this great section of the Word of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.